Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a bi-weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join our host, Jenna Kelly, as she dives into the world of attachment theory and trauma with field experts from across the nation. Hello there, my Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly. I hope this interview finds you well wherever you are listening or watching it today because you all are in for a treat with my next guest, Dr. Katie Hyden-Roots, who I'm just going to brag about for a minute, and then we'll get into the topic. So she is a licensed marital and family therapist and approved supervisor in Missouri for providing supervision in MFT. She also holds a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and her master's is in counseling psychology. Her experience, her wealth of experience is in, you know, she does relationship counseling and couples therapy. Most of her work has been focused on couples or families related to conflict, sexuality, and gender. She's also a certified sex therapist, uh, has a postgraduate certificate in marriage and family therapy, and she also serves as an avid researcher, teacher, and supervisor as a faculty member at St. Louis University in their Master's of Arts in Couple and Family Therapy and their PhD in Medical Family Therapy programs. She's also the supervisor for the Queer and Trans Wellness Clinic that is part of the Center for Counseling and Family Therapy, a student-run low-cost counseling center. You can find all of this information on her website as well, along with many other resources that we're gonna talk about in this interview I love Katie because she has one foot in clinical practice, one foot in research, and really weaves those things together so beautifully. And she is really passionate about supporting youth who are queer or trans, any sort of gender, sexual diversity. She... This was just who she was meant to work with, um, her passion and the way, what you will learn from her. That's why I love sitting down with her because I just learn something new every time Um, because she has just has this way of taking really kind of deep topics and still making them, you know, honoring the nuance in them, but still making them practical and digestible. So I will stop with all the hyping up because I just want you to experience it. And I hope you learn as much as I did. Enjoy. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Well, hello, Katie. Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm so excited to be joining you in conversation today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is my favorite topic. Yes, that's why you're here. And I knew that because we go way back. So this is another reason I'm excited to have you is I, you know, our paths were lucky to have crossed I don't know, it was probably like a decade ago now. And every time I'm with you, I learn so much from you on this topic, on on other topics related to attachment. So I knew that I had to get you on here sooner or later. So today we're going to be talking about LGBTQ plus youth and families and how this relates to attachment and important considerations for them. 
Um, but before we do, I would love to start with you. And I invite you to please share an attachment memory that feels important to you and to your work. That is a great intro question, by the way. I love that. Um, so uh, I I grew up in the 80s and 90s um, inside a very conservative evangelical Lutheran church. Um, and it, it was fascinating because I grew up inside what you might think of as a very hierarchical um, men lead, women follow experience. But all of my memories as a child, like, when I ask clients, like, tell me about a time when you got hurt, what parent did you go to? What did they do? My answer all the time is my dad. Um, and so race inside what should have been, or maybe he should have been um, more, uh, more in charge or more, more of the, the leader sort of less empathic parent. Um, he was the most emo emotionally attuned of both my parents. Um, and so he would, um, in true Christian fashion would pray with, with us every night um, before we went to bed. But it also, I found out later was like his sneaky way of always checking in with us um, mm -hmm. and hearing about our day. Um, he worked a lot um, as a pastor, 80 hour weeks, um, was gone a lot, but was always home for bedtime um, and made a point to do that with us. And so he would literally like sit there and listen to us. He didn't necessarily offer a lot of advice or tell us what to do. He just sort of sat there and was amazed by us. Um, and so some of my like core attachment memories are those nights when he would um, come and it was time for prayers, but it was also time to just have some time with him because he was gone so much. Um, and he's just still is, um, you know, recently retired, one of the warmest um, people I know. Mm. Well, thank you for that really touching reflection. And I think it's a beautiful way to start our conversation off and and the way you name just so many important ingredients in attachment that you might not have had the words for back then, but it's like, he was the most emotionally attuned and available and would just come be with and just love on you. So, so thank you. Um, now you've focused a lot of your work and passion on supporting families with, with gender and sexual diversity. And so I'm wondering how is it that you kind of came on that journey and yeah I mean I um I, I don't think I have a unique story but I I grew up inside purity culture in the 90s and um in purity culture you're you can talk about sex but only in the ways that you're going to avoid it and that it's only for this one particular time within a heterosexual relationship and there were all these you know rules around it lots of guilt lots of shame lots of fear Mm -hmm. uh, which the child I was, was a very curious, tenacious. If somebody told me there was a rule, my question was, why is it a real mm -hmm. rule? How do we know? Um, I drove my parents crazy uh, with that. And so as I'm sitting, you know, in some of these since only classes as a, as a young person, I had a hundred questions and nobody wanted to answer my questions. Mm -hmm. and eventually I was like, well, that's fine. I'll go find out myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so I found myself um, in graduate school. I have a master's in counseling psychology and peppering my faculty with questions about development and gender and sexuality and how do we know and who decided and how did this come to be? Um, post um, graduate education, um, I became a certified sex therapist through ASEC uh, and was fascinated. And it's like, 
whole world opened up. Um, I also had the experience early on um, in my own development where I was starting to understand myself and realizing that these binary ideas of straight and gay, um, male and female are actually much grayer, um, even in my own experience. Um, I, I broke all kinds of rules of being a girl and being feminine and being a young woman. Um, and I didn't quite fit if I was straight or gay. I didn't know, but I didn't have language. And so I think I'd been curious for a long time in my own development, but also in what I was experiencing and being given um, in my young life, that that just sort of carried in. Um, I, my mom used to say all the time that I was too smart for my own good. <laughs> um, and it was mostly just because I couldn't stop asking questions about different things. Um, her and I are very different. Um, we have a really wonderful relationship now, but it was contentious there for a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I just, I just wanted more information. Um, when I started clinical practice, my first work was in foster care. Um, and I spent about three years doing in-home family therapy and kids started coming out to me and I was like, what do you do with this? I don't remember this in my, <laughs> my training. I don't remember anybody telling me what to do. And then, you know, imagine like, coming out in a foster care system, mm -hmm. right? Where this young person um, has a bio family, has a foster family, has a social worker weighing in, has a family judge, right? Like all these people um, who are weighing in on their lives. And then, you know, very quietly to me one day in their bedroom basement, saying out loud, right? This thing that they'd sort of been holding on to. Um, and then watching as people reacted to it, you know, watching as folks pathologized it, well, it's because of all the childhood trauma um, or um, didn't know what to do with it, said it wasn't important, called it attention seeking. Like I watched so many reactions from so many different people and I frankly was pissed <laughs> by everyone's reaction that they, it wasn't more accepting. It wasn't more compassionate. It wasn't seeking to understand this young person. It was sort of, again, as happens often in foster care systems, sort of this coming over and deciding for. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really fueled this part of me that wanted to be an advocate for them, um, wanted them to have a different experience, if only with me um, mm -hmm. in terms of a relationship. And uh, and that, that has apparently snowballed to this point um, where I've spent the better part of the past 15 years um, working with LGBTQ young people and their families. And as a researcher, as a clinician, um, when I teach um, in my graduate courses uh, at St. Louis University, um, and I just, I love it. Like these young people give me energy and they, um, I learn from them all the time. Uh, as you might imagine, you know, the world keeps changing. And so I find it to be just incredibly life-giving both for them, but also to be able to be there for their parents. Mm -hmm. so different, you know, different reaction. Yeah. You're, you mentioned your mom said you're too smart for your own good. And I wonder like, who's good <laughs> because we, we need, you know, I think that's what's helped with some progression. I know we have a long ways to go and, and there's still a lot of legislation and things that are trying to stop that progression, but we need people like you who need, you know, wanted to shake up like the status quo. Cause that wasn't good. Mm -hmm. So 
there's a lot of diversity in the LGBTQ plus community, and it's hard to always know if we're using the correct terms. And some people might not understand why language and pronouns even matter. I was talking to a family member who I won't call out my relationship, but she was saying, you know, I guess it's just a generational thing because you know, we we spent 45 minutes in this large staff meeting that I was in going around and we had to, to share our name and our preferred pronoun. And it just felt like such a waste of time. <laughs> so you ground us a little bit and school us a little bit on why language matters and just this kind of structure and frame our, our conversation today. Yeah, so... Um... Most of us live a historical lives around language. So we sort of think the current language is how it's always been. Um, but actually language, as generally speaking, has always and forever changed culturally. We invent new words. I don't know if you keep up with the current um, teen TikTok on words. I learned them just to agonize, just to um, give my uh, teenager a hard time and I mm -hmm. use them correctly just to drive him crazy. But language is, is like that, right? Like there's always a new word invented for this, invented for that. Miriam dictionary will never end. We will always continuously be adding. Um, and the same is true when you think about um, gender and sexuality. So um, Michel Foucault is a French philosopher who um, started documenting sort of like what's happening around sexuality um, in the 1940s and uh, uh, early um, yeah, 30s, 40s, and 50s um, was kind of his time frame. And, you know, he talked about how language is invented often to constrain and control, mm -hmm. um, also to name phenomena, right? Um, and what he started documenting was the ways that language was invented in his time, very particularly to create laws um, around, uh, uh, like laws against sodomy, um, what at that time they called homosexuality. Um, fun fact uh, for folks, homosexuality was invented before the word heterosexuality as a word um, for naming a group, uh, but mostly for the purposes of um, controlling and constraining. Mm -hmm. um, and it was invented, it was used in laws, but also was added um, to biblical sac sacred text as well. So the language keeps moving. What we call something is often very particular um, to a generation, right? To a group. So, you know, the person from your family is not wrong. It is a generational change, but it's not unique to this generation around gender and sexuality. This has been going on since the dawn of time when we started categorizing and naming things and labeling things. Um, I think what's really what I say to parents, which I, what I think is really interesting and unique, even, you know, I, I don't feel old except every once in a while when, when I think about, you know, I, when I was growing up in the eighties, nobody told me I could ask questions about gender and its expression. I knew I violated it because I got feedback about that, mm -hmm. you know, violate a, a, an unspoken rule People right. are apt to correct you. Um, in the eighties, they called me a tomboy. Um, mostly because I liked athletics, which is like comical now to think about a girl liking athletics as being a, you know, gender non-conforming in mm -hmm. our first day. Right. But back then it was odd. And my mom would comment on, she could only be a cheerleader anyway. So this, what's happening now is we're to a point where there's now language to wrap around gender beyond binaries. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it's culturally acceptable and accessible. So young people can get it, whether they talk about it in school or not. Thank you to the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you to their friends. And there's an acceptability around that exploration that previous generations, it was just a foregone conclusion, right? It was your thrownness into the world that you were X gender based on um, your genitals at birth. So, so we, we have to begin to appreciate that this language will continue evolving like it always has, as opposed to what's up with this weird generation. Uh Um, And I think, I think when we can look at that history and lineage, we notice um, our contributions to that sort of the ways that generations before sort of pushed, pushed that change um, in, in ways that we didn't even think about around gender. Like, um, my, my, I remember my grandmother saying to me, I just can't believe women can wear pants. Like, it's like comical to think about mm-hmm. these gender expressions. What mm-hmm. we think about is like masculine expression today is unbelievably different than our grandparents' generation. Mm-hmm. Same with, um, you know, feminine expression. Um, it's, it's different, um, and it's malleable and it can change every day. And so I think if people really like took stock of, the language I I know was used then versus now, the way I think of acceptable gender expression then versus now, you start to go, oh, no, I, I see. I can see the movement um, and the ways that I have violated or not or helped maintain different things as well. I really appreciate that historical context because I think, like you said, people can sometimes think it's all just like what's happening right now but this is just an evolution and how grateful i feel that we have the ability to expand our language and make it more inclusive so for the purpose of our conversation today um and thinking about you know because i want to be inclusive and sensitive and so if i'm saying lg lgbtq plus or queer youth is it okay to kind of use those interchangeably, um, you know, just kind of, or, or how do you, you know, how do you, when you, since you talk about this so much, you know, kind of think about the best ways to be sensitive and mindful because it's also evolving. And like what we said, you know, a year ago could be different than, than what we're saying now. Yeah. I mean, I, um, well, I use LGBTQ when I mean to be inclusive of all of them. I think there are moments where it's more appropriate to name um, if it really only applies, let's say to trans kids, because there are very particular things for trans kids. There's very particular thing, thing, things for folks in the intersex community. Um, and there's very particular things for those um, from minoritized uh, sexualities. So some of the ways like things are evolving now is we're sort of getting away from, how do I say this? Just saying people identify a particular way versus talking about how there are many sexualities and many genders. All of them are possible Mm -hmm. um, inside the human experience. Um, And so it's not um, preferred or it's not that I identify as it's, I am. Um, Mm -hmm. You talk to um, LGBTQ young people, all of them, um, the, the, the language is moving that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's less, uh, it, it's more embodied in that sense. Um, queer youth is a very acceptable thing to say again, it, but it refers to that umbrella of the LGBTQ 
IA plus, um, which is fine when you're talking about them as a whole group. But if you only mean a particular group, it's important to say that, I think, um, if if it doesn't apply to other groups. Okay. Thank you. That's that's helpful. And I think really honors to how important it is to hear from the queer youth themselves about what how to best honor them and see them and respect them. So so let's bring attachment into our conversation. How does attachment theory apply to families with with queer youth and parenting? Yeah. Um, it's my core theory that I operate from um, as a therapist and even as a researcher. It's how I sort of look at and understand data. Um, so in in some ways, it looks like any other parent-child relationship where you're looking at um, those attachment processes. Uh, you know, you're looking at anxiety and avoidance. You're looking at emotion regulation. You're looking at... Um, uh, I, I love, love, love talking about uh, secure bases and safe havens um, in that context. Um, and so you, you're looking at many of the same things. One of the unique features um, for a family um, with a young person who comes out is that young person might be the only person in the family who's a member of that community. You know, unlike other marginalized communities, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes it's a shared communal family, right? Identity around mm-hmm. race, ethnicity, immigration, like all of us are sort of in this boat together. Mm-hmm. An LGBTQ kid who comes out, maybe not. Yeah. Um, if they're lucky, they'll have a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, somebody um, who is a member of the community, but sometimes they really feel like it's really just them. Um, and so, and that is a unique feature in terms of a relational experience where I, I don't share this with you. Um, and I sometimes think about, um, oh no, now I'm gonna blank on his last name, um, intersubjectivity, mm-hmm. uh, um, 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 attachment-focused family therapy. What is this? Daniel Hughes. Mm-hmm. It's about the need for um, this intersubjectivity where I can enter where you are at and see it from your perspective. Parents tell me all the time, I cannot see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it, particularly around trans stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of parents have we've culturally made the leap to go, oh, you're trying to somebody of the same gender. Oh, cool. I mean, you know, that's how that's how same-sex marriage passed in 2015. That's how opinion polls have changed. Like we've culturally wrapped our minds around that. But parents, particularly parents of trans kids say, I don't know how to enter this space with them. I have no context for what it looks like to explore gender, express it in the way that they want to express it. Um, they want to go see a doctor about this. I I have no script for this. Mm-hmm. And so there ends up being this rupture in the relationship Um Parents are desperate. Most parents I see, I mean, they're coming to family therapy, so they must want, right, to overcome it. Um, They're desperate to go, someone tell me what this is and how I kind of wrap my hands around it. And the uncomfortable answer sometimes is, you might not ever get it. Like it, there, there might not be something inside of you that can connect to that. 
Um, it doesn't mean you can't try to understand it from their perspective, mm-hmm. but there isn't going to be an, it's going to be tougher because you just don't share um, language, um, similar experiences, all kinds of things. And so um, parents experience a profound level of confusion, um, anxiety, uh, and, and some of them end up describing it. There's an old narrative around it feeling like grief and loss, like they've lost something. But I think what they've lost is that connection. They've Mm -hmm. lost the ability to be in it with their kid and the way that they had been for maybe for quite a while, or at least in their own way could do it. And I think the loss is that, that connection. I can't be inside that because I don't, I have no experience that would help me understand that even um, subjectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That really makes sense. And so if we think about it as a potential rupture, like as a queer youth may be exploring how they're expressing their gender, that it does not align with their parent or caregivers, you know, kind of norm or just the overall collective norm, you know, how does attachment support that? And and are there any differences in the research with queer youth and attachment styles with their parents and caregivers? Um, the research, um, is all over the place. And I think partly cause we've been, um, studying it from a quantitative perspective. So we do these measures of attachment and any clinician will tell you those measures are half useful because there's, there's the meaning I make of whatever the item is in front of me. And also my, my level of security with any given person on any given day given any given event is going to fluctuate. And there's usually some, um, you know, some fluidity in there between those two things. Um, I studied it from a qualitative perspective um, with some families we had go through attachment-based family therapy. Um, All the families had an LGBTQ um, adolescent. Um, Most of them were trans. Um, We had one who was questioning, uh, but the rest were um, trans kids. And um, when you interviewed them pre and post, and then you watch the therapy videos, which is one of my favorite pastimes is watching <laughs> their live therapy videos. Um, what you what you see is this sort of, the family has already worked out an attachment style, right? A way of connecting with this adolescent um, and the adolescent to them. And so any conversation around gender expression or exploration happened in the same pattern and way you would expect. So if there was a highly avoidant teen and a highly anxious mom, which was actually our most most common situation, um, you would watch that mom pepper that kid with questions, a thousand questions. And the kid going, I don't know, mom, watch a YouTube video. And so you would like watch this sort of dance of I wanna know you, I wanna know you, I wanna know you. And this young person going, figure it out yourself. Um, I don't want to have to explain this to you. Uh-huh. Um, and and so it was just fascinating that all of that attachment history just came forward. And so the rupture certainly wasn't helpful for anybody. But if uh-huh. we were already 
you know, at a pretty insecure place, not a lot of trust, not a lot of, you know, safe haven for that young person to come and be comforted and, you know, understood and accepted. It, you know, it's just a, a matchbox mm -hmm. <laughs> for explosion. And this was just like the next thing um, that was put on the burn pile. And we were going to sort of continue this very contentious, conflictual relationship. And so when they came in for attention-based family therapy, we, you know, it's a very thorough model, we do a huge background of the parent um, and the young person in terms of trauma, child development, parenting um, experiences for the parent. And you have to begin to intervene at the level of um, the ways that their approaches to parenting haven't been helping them anyway, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and certainly aren't helping them here. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, it's all the research says those attachment ruptures for LGBTQ youth are a risk for suicide. But if you add a context where there's already insecurity in the relationship, and if we actually like also measure that pre coming out, which is hard to do because we'd have to know who's going to come out and when and all those things, uh -huh. um, we would probably be able to identify a group of young people who are at a particular risk on the basis of attachment insecurity to begin with, and then just add this next rupture. Um, that feels insurmountable. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why suicide rates for trans young people is so high um, because that rupture is so hard to overcome for many parents. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good reminder of, yes, there are important considerations when thinking about queer youth and what they may need from their parent and caregiver, but also first and foremost, it's what all children and babies and humans need in regards to attachment. And so if we can think about, you know, starting early and really what do we do to get that attachment dance off in the most secure direction as possible, that that's going to really help be a buffer for and support, you know, gender and sexual identity, you know, exploration and expression and, you know, that example of, I think you said it was the, an anxious, you know, parent um, and, you know, kind of peppering the questions and, and all of that. And, and, you know, I'm sure a well-intentioned, you know, I want to understand, I want to know you. And yet also an important part of attachment is being able to differentiate and the parent being able to support that kind of going out and exploration. And so, again, I think if we start early, even from a preventative lens of how do we build in healthy gender identity and sexual identity ex exploration as part of the attachment process. Yeah. I mean, that would be, um, that would be revolutionary, I think for, for most parents. Um, I, yeah. Cause I think this current generation of young people has really surprised, um, really surprised their parents. Um, but yeah, if we saw it as just part, and honestly, if you look at the literature on child development, um, around gender and sexuality exploration in those areas we know is normal and has been normal for a very 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 long time um when i do lectures for our med students i pull up a picture of my um, my youngest who's now nine but in the picture um she's three and she's all dressed up like she looks hilarious and it makes no sense she's not wearing a shirt she has this bandana on um she has glasses she has this goofy grin right um, and she's three in the picture. And I, um, and I talked to them about like, what would it be like if we normalized 
this kind of exploration of expression, which is what's happening, right? That's what dress up is. That's what make believe is, right? If we kept encouraging it, you know, into the real world and in the ways that they are trying to figure out who am I in this world? Um, but, you know, what, what, what would change for young people if we just, you know, found it to be very normal, you know, a sex assigned at birth girl would want to explore clothing that appeared more masculine because whatever the reason was yeah, um, that we might be less, I don't know, frightened by it or something. Um, and instead just see like, Oh yeah, look, they're figuring it out. Mm -hmm. Same way you might normalize, right. Uh, gender neutral pronouns mm -hmm. as a kid is figuring it out, um, that they're not quite sure. And so they'd like to be called they, them as they sort of explore this. Cool. I'm happy to free you up. Mm -hmm. I mean, a piece for me, a secure base, particularly on gender expression is, um, I, I'm going to create sort of this cocoon that won't and this secure place for you to try these things out with me, um, with you in it, um, so that you don't feel alone in it. And you know, I'm not going anywhere, but I'm also going to create boundaries that still create freedom for you. Mm -hmm. um, I think so often we, we, and this was, this is of course, you know, traditional old parenting is we parent in a way that we think we're going to like direct children somewhere, as opposed to create parameters within which for them to explore, mm -hmm. you know, yes, and discover. And, and, and I think we would be less anxious as parents. I'm including myself in that. If, if we um, felt like it was acceptable right, from society looking in to go, look, so-and-so is exploring what a wonderful parent they allow for these, but mm -hmm. we don't do that. We judge people. So, um, but I think there's a place for that where we increasingly allow our children, particularly with their bodies, autonomy, mm -hmm. um, autonomy around expression and, and, and how they want their bodies to be in relationship, um, to the world. Um, but, you know, the older kids get, the more we start curating what is an acceptable mm -hmm. way to dress, look, cut your hair. Um, and society does it too, not just parents, right? There's all kinds of social norms and peer pressure around that, um, that really narrow, I think, what was once this place for imagination and discovery for young people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it makes me think about, I remember you talking about even the term, coming out, you know, and when there's more freedom to explore and, and it's not as rigid with traditional gender and sexual norms, just like any conversation, you know, it also makes me think about, you know, working with families who've, um, you know, adoption and, and how it's like, we're going to someday have the conversation versus it's, just kind of part of the fabric of our, of our being. And so it doesn't have to be like this dreaded conversation. And, and I think that's where secure attachment can really help buffer that. But can you tell us more about coming out and, and what, how you kind of reframe that in your work? Yeah, well, I, um, I had a wonderful mentor, um, Dr. Julie Tilson, um, who wrote a book, called um, Queering Your Therapy Practice. Actually, she wrote a number of books. This is, that's book three. It's the one that's a required reading in one of my classes. Um, so I know it the best, but um, she she has said for a long time, like the language 
coming out kind of needs to die. Um, because what we really want young people to do is to carefully invite safe people in, mm -hmm. right? To be also the owners of their identities, of their bodies, of their expressions um, that mean they have choices. So as opposed to like requiring, you have to come out because you wouldn't want to lie to people. What if those people aren't safe? What if they do harm to that young person? Really? So they have to like out themselves. So you all feel better, but they're going to get harmed in the process. Um, and it's just, it's just wrong, frankly. And it's also like incredibly unsafe um, and puts already vulnerable young people in vulnerable positions to powerful adults. Um, there are school districts right now writing policy that would require if a young person came out to a teacher, that that teacher would have to call the parents. And I'm like, are you trying to create child abuse cases? Oh, wow. What are you doing right now? Um, in, in the state of Missouri, where I said, it's wild. Um, and then if the teacher doesn't do it, they could get fired. Um, so there's a penalty for them not outing this kid. And they don't even know the relative safety of doing to this young person. Mm. It's also really common for young people to explore outside of the home, right? In a school setting and with peers, but they might not be sure yet who they are. And now you're going to out them as they're trying to figure it out. I, I just, I, the level of control we're trying to put on the bodies of young people, particularly trans um, youth is just, it's sort of shocking some days to me. Like I see it. Um, but anyway, so I'm going to go back to your question. <laughs> so the opposite of that is if we allowed trans LGBTQ young people, queer youth, to get to go, who do I want to invite in today? And if you get invited in, you are a guest mm -hmm. in their most private and sacred home, which is their body and themselves. And your job is to not screw it up and be a bad guest. Mm. If we could talk about it that way, now who's responsible for that young person? I am, you are, mm -hmm. anybody they decide to tell, to not screw it up. Because what they've told us is precious and and beautiful, frankly, and, and a look into their inner world. And isn't that what most of us want to know about our young people? You know, I think about like, I have an almost 14-year-old. It just freaks me out saying that he turns 14 next week. And, and my biggest fear is losing connection with him and not knowing, right? Like something's going on and I don't know what's going on and now I can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And so how do I protect him? How do I, you know, care about or what, or just listen, right? Just be there to, to comfort him if he's struggling, if he has decided I'm not safe. Um, and he's decided that I'm not somebody he can invite into that inner part of who he is. Um, whether we're talking about sexuality, gender, or anything. Yeah. Pick, pick a topic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things we know from the research is the safest LGBTQ young people are those who have a trusted adult who accepts and loves them. And it's because they can go to them when they're feeling suicidal, when they're feeling depressed, when mm -hmm. they're feeling anxious. That 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 is attachment at work for me like that is the lifeline of attachment is and it really only takes one like one adult and they don't have to be a parent and you lower their risk of suicide by 10 times and so 
if we began to see ourselves as invited guests, I think, I think we could be available for more young people as a mm-hmm. result. We often play these little reels of sound bites of interviews, and I already know that's going to be <laughs> real because it was so <laughs> beautifully said, Katie. Um, just said it with such needed conviction and passion. And I see the parallel of when you were that person for those early foster families that you were talking about that you worked with and how some stupid law <laughs> like that they're trying to pass could have really destroyed that trust of being an invited guest. And so, you know, I know that's a whole nother soapbox, but it's important because it does impact their ability. Um, and there's lives at stake, like you said, I mean, literal lives at stake. So, um, so maybe we can talk a little bit more about, you know, just ways to get involved in terms of, you know, legislation and advocacy. Um, before we do though, I want to also talk about an article that you wrote that I think is a really important resource. It's called judgy aunties and your inner child making trans child centered decisions this holiday season. And, you know, holidays are among us, depending on on when you're listening to this interview. And what is it about holiday time and family gatherings that can, you know, provide challenging uh, moments in attachments? Yeah, I, um, I'll speak from a parent perspective first. Um, For me, and what I see parents go through too, is there's this moment where, you know, the holidays for many families require we go home or have these events where it's as if we're going home. And I don't know what it's like in your family, but in my family, when I go home, I'm often still looked at and talked about as if it's like 30 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of comical. And then I have to throw my credentials around and everybody leaves me alone. But <laughs> Does that work? No, <laughs> I'll have to try no, that next not, time. <laughs> no, my just give me a hard time and it all dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, no cares. Not in my own house. But but that that inner child in us that's alive and well, and I, I I'm convinced it is for, for all of us, um, is sort of reawakened. It's like, oh no, mm-hmm. face those people. In my family, it is some judgy aunts. Um, I love you all, but it's a lot. Um, so it's, 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 it's the part of you that wants to protect yourself that I think then gets projected on your child as if you're pro- protecting your child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, um, you know, that, that psychodynamic sort of way of seeing attachment, but it's, it's, oh, I'm doing it for them. And it's like, you sh- sure, sure about that. <laughs> sure. Sure. It's not about you. Cause mm-hmm. what are you? In the article, I offer some reflective questions because when I start asking, like, who are you most concerned about disappointing to parents? Who are you most concerned about upsetting? Um, Who uh, in the past has been um, somebody where conflict has not gone well with um, or you feel like really doesn't understand you? What emerges is that inner child who is going, oh, crap, we're going back into what is not safe. Um, where I cannot show up authentically. And now I have a this my child who I love more than anything in the world who's going to enter this same scary place for me. Mm-hmm. How, how do I protect them? And 
as happens to many of us, how do I protect my family? Um, because there's this weird thing I think that happens with attachment that despite the amount of anger or frustration or hurt we have in our families, there's sort of this loyalty tug that gets hit and, uh -huh. and we still want to protect our parents and make them proud or we still, oh, yeah. um, you know, want, you know, that aunt who told me I would amount to nothing because I was too smart for my own good. Like my mother said, um, we, we want to show them, right. We want to show them we're fine and we want to, you know, have them look at us a different way. Um, and I, I think all the insecurity, right. Shows up in those moments and parents then make decisions really based on that inner child mm -hmm. and not on from a more secure place um, with their own, um, you know, young person in mind. And so I think, I think holidays have a way and I've been doing therapy for a long time. And every time this holiday season hits, every client I work with goes, so it's the holiday season. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I watch all of them sort of almost start anticipating with anxiety. Um, and for families with LGBTQ youth, particularly young people who are just coming out, you know, young people who are maybe just beginning to socially transition as the language for a trans young person who starts, you know, moving to an expression of gender in clothing, hair, whatever, um, that better fits them, which might look very different than sex assigned at birth, gender norms. Um, the parent might be introducing a very different looking young person to a whole group of people. They have their own sort of mixed feelings about. Um, and that's a, that's a terrifying moment for that parent. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'm always trying to help them sort of slow down and, you know, reorient like, okay, what parts are in your child? <laughs> mm -hmm. What parts are really this child? What part is some old family stuff we need to deal with? What part is, you know, your own sort of insecurity of yourself as a parent or as a person? Um, what resources, supports do you need? Okay, now that we've processed all of that emotionally, let's talk about the young person as opposed mm -hmm. to confusing these two things and conflating them um, as the same. Mm hmm yeah, that's why I love this article and we're going to link your website and it's got some other great resources on there too, but those reflective questions really hit deep. And I think that's one of the, you know, critical challenges of strengthening attachment with parenting in general is like kind of knowing what's my stuff, what's my inner child versus, you know, really following your individual child's needs and being responsive to those needs. And it, I mean, it can be hard to untangle all that. And then you amplify that with, with trans youth. So, I mean, I think big takeaway from what you just shared is just the importance of the parent and caregiver having support, having place where they can work some of that out because parenting is always going to reveal more inner child work that, that we all have to do, but it's like, where are you doing that work? Who do you have to take that to? Yeah, you're I joke with my students that um parenting has helped me grow like personally, professionally. I mean, I I have never been tested and tried, right, in so many ways as as being a parent to these two young people, and I really think there should have been an easier way 
to get here. Like it just shouldn't have been all, all of this blood, sweat, and tears and whatnot. Like, wasn't there, is there a cleaner path? Is there an exercise routine? Like, I really <laughs> wish there could have been some. I wouldn't give my kids up for anything, but it's just, I mean, when you think about all that parents go through just as a general experience in our current mm-hmm. society, um, just add a layer. It's it's any wonder, right? They do as well as they do. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. So we've talked a lot about how to support families and parents and caregivers, but a lot of times they may be doing this with the support of a professional and in your field, you know, you train a lot of mental health therapists and family therapists. So, and I know you've also done some research on how to really build therapist capacity and working with more, you know, populations that are more vulnerable, which would include queer and trans youth. So what, what are you learning? What do clinicians need to put in their, you know, tool bag more, so to speak? Yeah. Um, one of the things we found, so we did some research on um, the impact of different kinds of educational experiences for our graduate students. Um, our program is in couple and family therapy. Um, so these are master's students. Um, and we we sort of offer them a variety of experiences, really traditional classroom experiences, um, more sort of experiential interprofessional experiences. And then we kind of asked them, what impacted you most? What mattered most? How did you, um, particularly in terms of uh, the word we used was self-efficacy, sort of my ability to take what I learned and turn it into an intervention, turn it into practice. Um, that's what I'm most interested in. It's, you know, one thing to have head knowledge. It's another thing to like do something with it. And what um, what they told us, particularly around youth, was that they um, they needed to actually meet youth. <laughs> so many of our um, uh, graduate students, like A, hadn't done any clinical work. And some of them had very little contact with children um, and adolescents. They sort of remembered themselves as children and adolescents. Mm-hmm. Um, they understood the adults, right, in their world. So we had this one um, educational experience that I actually bribed one of my kids to come in and do. Um, and they had to interview my kid um, mm. and and learn how to do a child interview in a playroom, in a therapy mm-hmm. room. And all of them mentioned that at the end, like, oh my gosh, because he was eight at the time and they would ask him questions and he would go, I don't know what that means, right? Because there's a language difference, right? Um, and so these really like real life, real life experiential moments. Um, the other thing we've done is more recently is we invited in co-educators who are part of the trans community and said, come educate with us. Um, we paid them for their time and their expertise um, to come and again, talk with our students, educate them, tell them what they need to know, tell them about their life experiences. And again, our, our students were like, that was the most impactful thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and it, the other interesting thing it did, um, that we were really curious about is it increased their empathy for the trans community It increased their personal embodied comfort Mm -hmm. in talking to a trans person. Cause I think a part of what happens for many marginalized communities and trans community, I've seen this too, with our black and brown communities, that if you're not part of those communities, you have so much fear about getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. 
that you actually do get it wrong because mm-hmm. you have so much fear or you say nothing or you don't just talk to them like they're a person because you're sort of trying to do it right. Mm-hmm. But getting to meet folks from that community outside of a clinical setting, hear their stories. And, and I think that it being in like really shared body space, um, one part of attachment that I don't think gets enough airtime is the embodied parts, the parts where like my body becomes secure with your body. Yes. I have experiences in the room with you. Yes. Right. Head knowledge, knowing things, facts, watching movies, all great. Nothing wrong with that. But comfort with folks who are different than you requires my body has shared space, felt empathy for, um, connection to, um, around even irrelevant things. Right. Um, I remember this one queer kid I had him and I both love Tupac. <laughs> I'm a nineties kid. Good I, taste. I, yes. I was a white kid in the suburbs of Detroit. And so of course I listened to Tupac because that's what white kids did. We all just wanted to be part of the hip hop. <laughs> so I like, I had dubbed all of, um, Tupac's <laughs> CDs onto like tape that was hidden in my room anyway uh, so him and I really bonded about this about the music mm-hmm. and I didn't understand entirely where he was coming from as a queer kid at the time um I've never been a foster kid right all these things that disconnected us but man could we sit and listen to Tupac and talk about his poetry um and then he wrote poetry and then we talked like you can find these ways of connecting and in shared embodied space and music for me is so embodied um, that it's sort of like you learn at this level of, I don't even have to talk about it. Um, that I can, level. Yes. Yeah, that I can securely connect with you because all the anxiety is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever fears they had, including by uh, now bias isn't always going to be gone, but like transphobia, homophobia, like the really like sharp conscious ones, I can begin to at least be conscious of them and manage them because my body's going, you're fine. And mm-hmm. I can self-soothe in those moments, even in the midst of the difference. Um, and that's really been my hope in our education of our grad students to give them enough experiences where they begin to get this embodied felt sense of, I can connect with you. Um, even across whatever differences, um, even if it's Tupac, I don't care, like whatever it takes. <laughs> that's where yeah. most of the time, like whatever it takes to connect to this young person, that's what I'm doing. So. I love that you're incorporating this in t- at the graduate level into the training and making it so experiential because it's hard to even put, I mean, you put it in words so well, but like you said, it's more this felt sense of how I'm showing up which is not necessarily a skill you're going to read in a book. And a lot of times, um, and especially, you know, people of power and and with privilege, you know, looking at my own, um, you know, being cisgender and white and the privileges I come, you know, we're really good at over intellectualizing as it is. (laughs) So, and we may use that as a strategy when we're uncomfortable, We, we may use that even more. And so really getting it at that more primitive somatic you know, felt sense is so important. So I, I'm really glad that that you're doing that. Yeah. The other thing you made me think about is part of, I mean, one of the hard parts about putting words to this, it's also the absence of something. Mm-hmm. Right? The anxiety is gone. The fear is gone. So what's left? Right. Like, yeah. Those are, those are always harder to 
define or name. Mm-hmm. And you usually just have to help students begin to experience it. And then they go, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, we're running out of time and I want to keep going because this has yeah. been so great as to be expected. But I'm wondering if you could just highlight any other resources like I said, your website's great. It's one of them. And we also kind of touched on legislation and advocacy. So maybe if there's, I know there's a lot of great resources out there for for that as well. Yeah, there's, so there's several, my brain just thought of like 10. So I'm going to, I'll list the top three. Um, The Trevor Project um, is a national organization to follow. Uh, They actually have been to St. Louis many times um, in Missouri this past year because of some of the legislation. Um, And I got to do a presentation with um, one of their attorneys around looking at the data they're gathering for LGBTQ youth in the state of Missouri and nationally. Um, They run a helpline for suicide and crisis helpline, but they also do um, just a lot of research around the impact of um, the political legislation on mental health of young people. Um, They're a wonderful organization. Uh, the other place to go, um, if you're in um, Missouri or you're in the St. Louis area or East St. Louis is Squish, um, the St. Louis uh, Queer and Trans Helpline. Um, they do phenomenal work around creating both a helpline, but also collecting resources. They have something called the Squish Book um, mm-hmm. that is just a running list of resources um, in the community for LGBTQ youth and adults. Um, and so if you're ever short on like, is there a thing for this? Is there, it's probably in the squish book. You can probably go find it there um, okay. in our region. Um, so those are two, there's a, there's a new um, organization called um, Campaign for Southern Equality. Um, they uh, have created chapters across the South um, in creating hubs of resources around finding Um, gender affirming care uh, for young people and adults in states where there is either the threat of legislation or legislation has passed um, to create barriers to it. Um, And so they have a wonderful um, hotline you can call. Uh, They will help you coordinate care um, and get to the, uh, get what you need. They also have scholarships and resources for families um, in in the event that that is needed. Um, So those three my top three, um, but I could probably just keep going. Yeah. And you can send me more and we can link all of those. So those, those are great to send us off on. And you've already touched on this so eloquently throughout our interview, but if there's anything else you want to just end us with, especially like, how do you, you know, what do you envision for the world, especially when it comes to queer and trans youth and, their safety and attachment relationships? Um, I can't predict the future, although, although, you know what? I really don't know that I want to predict the future sometimes. Um, but I have, um, I do have sort of this like radical imagination of what's possible. Um, or what I believe is possible. And honestly, it comes from sort of watching these families um, when they did, who are part of our attachment-based family therapy pilot. You know, I watched this mom go from, you know, all of this rupture and disconnect, long history of lots of disconnect with this young person for many reasons. Um, And I watched her over about 16 sessions 
get to a point where she went, I get it. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here now. I get it. Um, and we had to get through a lot of things to get there, but what she was saying was, I have figured out that actually as a parent to this young trans person, I, my job is not to fix everything for them. Uh, my job is to be with them in whatever's next. Um, we have a picture in the resource guide we made that this, our artist Colleen Clark created um, when she was trying to figure out how to, you know, put in a picture what this mom was saying. Um, and she drew a picture of a forest, not a super scary forest, but a forest with some obstacles and a young person and a mom standing like mom's arms around kid. And they're just sort of facing out to sort of this unknown. And for me, like, that's my hope that parents get to a point where they go, okay, I don't know what's next. I can't fix everything that's going to happen in your life because the lives of trans people are going to be tough for a while, but I'm not going to let you do it alone. Mm -hmm. And that, that's my hope. Mm. That's beautiful. Yes. And you were helping families figure out that forest that you talked about. You were a light forest. <laughs> you were a light in that forest and you have just shown so much light on, on this really important topic today. And I just so appreciate the way you bring both clinical and research perspectives into the conversation. I know that so many people are going to learn from this and I'm so grateful that we got to chat today, Katie, and I will continue to learn from you and look forward to all the times that I can, can keep crossing paths with you. So thank you so much. Me too. Happy to be. Thanks. Bye. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and share with your friends and coworkers. You can also connect and chat with other listeners through our Facebook group. On behalf of all of us here at the Knowledge Center, thanks for tuning in.